come and we ask that you would magnify your worth. Lord, take the preaching of your word to edify your saints, that we might exalt in Jesus, we might exalt Jesus, that we might delight in his supremacy. Holy Spirit, let the sermon that is heard be better than the one that is preached for the good of your people. And all of the redeemed said together, Amen. Children, let me invite you to find your teachers in the back. My name is Joey Kraft. I serve as one of the pastors here. And so I have the privilege of opening God's Word to us this morning. Uh, Before I do that, two quick uh, announcements. One, if you are looking for a church to call home, uh, we have a membership introduction class two weeks from today, right after service. That's July the 28th. Uh, You can come find me after service or fill out the card and give it to me and we'll get you the appropriate information. Also, uh, today, right after service, my family is going across the street for a picnic, and so we'd love to have all of you join us. Uh, If you didn't bring a sandwich, I made one extra one just for you, Uh, and so you're welcome to have it. And I also hear a rumor there is a Wawa that is open right over there if you want to buy a sandwich and come and join us, but uh, we want to enjoy the the sun. But um, yeah, so I'll start with a question. What must I do to get eternal life? That's a question a man once asked Jesus face to face. Jesus replied, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, honor your mom and dad. The man says back, I've done all this since I was a little boy. This man, anything's like me, that's not true, by the way. But Jesus doesn't even dispute that. Jesus goes behind the question to a deeper issue. He says, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What's interesting about this is Jesus says you lack one thing, but then he tells them a series of things to do. So what is it? What is the one thing this man lacks? It's not more religious deeds. He's tried hard and he's kept the rules. It's not good behavior. That's what he's been doing. The one thing this man lacks is treasure in heaven that is greater than his treasure on earth. He lacks love for God. This man cares about the right thing. He even comes to the right place. But he's doing it for the wrong reasons. And he gets one thing wrong. This man has been living a moral life, not because he enjoyed God, but because he wanted to earn something from God. See, this man neglected to realize that the way to get eternal life is not through a system of rule keeping, but through loving a Savior of grace who redeems despite our rule breaking. So I wonder this morning, what is your view of the Christian faith? Is your view that the Christian faith is primarily concerned with external behavior? Are rituals alone enough to please God? Or could we actually do the right things for the wrong reasons and this be displeasing to God? Could it be that God is not just after our actions, but more importantly, our affections? Could that be? Well, this morning as we explore Zechariah chapters 7 and 8, We'll get answers to these questions. So let me encourage you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and turn to Zechariah chapter 7. If you don't know where that is, ask the person next to you. Use the table of contents in the front. It's there for a reason. 
A brief review. So, so Zechariah, as we've been saying, is an Old Testament post-exilic minor prophet. A lot of big words. Old Testament, before Jesus, post-exilic. That's after or post the exile of God's people. Minor prophet. Does minor mean he's less important? No. Minor just means his ministry was shorter than what we call the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The name Zechariah means God remembers. And that's what this book is about. Zechariah is about God remembering the covenant he has made with his people. And so Zechariah begins his ministry by calling the people of God who have just returned from 70 years of exile away from the comfort of their own homes and to rebuilding the temple of God. Because the temple was important to God's people because it signifies God's presence. The temple was central to everything about what it meant to be part of the people of God, their life and their worship. So Zechariah opens up and he says, remember God who's remembered you and get to work on the temple. And then we saw these eight visions of the courses of chapter 1 through 6. And over the course of these visions we see that God will do two things. He'll bring comfort to His people and what to the enemies? Judgment. And He promises a renewed presence among His people. Then we saw that that He would silence the accusations of Satan by taking away His people's sin in a single day through this guy named the branch. And then last week, we saw the branch would be this priest king. The branch is Jesus Christ who builds the forever temple of God. The great high priest, the king who bears royal honor, who who came and lived a sinless life and died on the cross and atoned for sin in a single day. And he rose on the third day to do what? To build God's temple, the church. As we journey toward our heavenly home, New Jerusalem, that celestial city where God's people will be in His presence forever together and ever. This is what God has been showing us through the book of Zechariah. Now in chapter 7, we transition from God showing things to Zechariah. Now he's going to speak to the people through Zechariah. Look at Zechariah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kestlev. Now the people of Bethel had Sherezer and Regum Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priest of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? If you remember back to chapter 1, the book opens in the second year of King Darius, which is 520 B.C., and now it's the fourth day in the ninth month of the fourth year of King Darius, which, if you're wondering... Is December 7th, 518 B.C. And we know from the book of Ezra, chapter 6, the temple will be completed in two years in 516. And as an aside, let, let, us, let us now look past the historical specificity of the Bible. See, the Bible is not a personal, private revelation given to one person in secret. No, the Bible records verifiable events, places, peoples, and times. Even the resurrection, beloved, is a historical claim. We can have confidence, beloved, in the veracity of God's word, the truth. It is completely true. 
And as chapter 7 opens, rebuilding of the temple is underway. The people start asking questions naturally. Well, when the temple is completed, what change is that going to bring to my life today? So they send a delegation from Bethel to come ask the priests and the prophets, should should we keep fasting in the fifth month? Now, what's interesting about that is God never commanded a fast in the fifth month. The only fast commanded in the Old Testament was on the Day of Atonement. And that's not what they're talking about here. So it appears these people have added a, serial, uh, a series of, of fasts to designate specific times in Jerusalem's downfall and their exile. So if you go read Jeremiah 52, you'll see that it was the fifth month when the temple was destroyed. And the people evidently had been fasting to remember this event. And they had added fast in the fourth month, the seventh month, and the tenth month. And they're asking... If the temple is rebuilt, is the exile over? And if the exile is over, can we stop fasting? That's the question. And Zechariah addresses that question through the rest of chapters 7 and 8. And we can summarize what he says with three statements. First, realize sin is deeper than your actions. Second, remember sin brings destruction. Third, Rejoice that God promises restoration. Let's look at each of those. Realize sin is deeper than your actions. Picking up in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh. For these 70 years. Was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink. Do not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves. Were, these, were not these the word that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? So instead of giving an answer, the Lord asked three questions. And, and notice who he addresses here. Who does he address? All the people of the land and the priest. The Lord is talking to everyone, the, the pastors and the people, as it were. And he asked, Was your fasting really for me? Aren't you eating for yourself? Aren't you drinking for yourself? And isn't this the same warning the prophets gave your grandparents? See, instead of getting a simple yes or no, the Lord goes deeper. The fast may have started started out with God honoring repentance and remorse. But in time, they turned into hollow, superstitious Rituals. And notice their language. They're not eager about these. They're saying, we've been doing this for so long, God. It's inconvenient. It's a burden to me. Can, can we stop? Can we worship you the way we want to? The reality of worshiping God has been replaced with the ritual of man. There might have been an appearance of godliness, but there was no affection for God Himself. And the Lord is saying, you're acting just like the people before the exile. You are the same. Won't you listen to the former prophets? Perhaps he's talking about Isaiah, who the Lord said through him, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure. Maybe he has Amos in mind. Another former prophet who proclaims, Thus says the Lord, I hate, 
I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Let's put that in context. Here's what the Lord is saying. Because of the self-centered motives of your heart, I take no delight when you gather on Sundays. I hate when you take the Lord's Supper to manipulate me. Please stop singing. I can't stand your empty voices. I loathe when you read the Bible just to try to get something from me. Do you see what the Lord is saying? Sin is deeper than what we do. As some of you know, I have two daughters. And one of the things we do in our house is called a catechism. And a catechism is memorizing questions and answers. And one of the questions is, what is sin? You can ask my daughters after church. We'll see how well they do. Uh, But what is sin? The answer is, sin is... Rebellion against God, rejection of God's law, loving something more than God. See, we're tempted to stop with those first two. But we have to remember that it's deeper. We cannot reduce sin to bad actions. It's all the way down to misplaced affections because sin is not just disobedience against God's law. It's a disordering of our love. As the saints of old have said, sin is being curved in on self. It's self-centered love. And here in Zechariah 7, the people's obedience has nothing to do with God and everything to do with themselves. It's like this story. There's a humble gardener who loves his king deeply. He gathers a basket full of carrots and gives them to the king. And the king rewards him with a larger plot of land so he can continue to be a blessing to others. Well, one of the noblemen in the village see this and say, Ah, if he can get some land from some carrots, how much more could I get for a greater gift? So he goes and he finds a fine horse. And he goes to the king and says, King, here, I'm giving you a fine horse. The king, discerning his selfish motive, says, Thank you. And the man complains. And the king replies, You see, The gardener gave me some carrots. But you were trying to give yourself a horse. And like the noblemen in this story, the Israelites are not obeying out of a love for God, but a love for self. See, they didn't even need God. They only wanted His rewards. They care about the right thing. They come to the right place. But they lack one thing. The most important thing. Love for God. This text is telling us it's possible to seek a good thing, the favor of the Lord, in the right place, for the wrong reasons. It see, it's possible for me to want to be a pastor, not for God's glory and reputation, but my own. It's possible for you to read your Bible, and fast and pray so you can say, 
I did my duty. God, you owe me. Rather than saying, I met with my God. Oh, how I love him. It's possible to attend church regularly because it's convenient and makes you feel good. Rather than seeking the Lord and the good of his people. The heart-penetrating question this text is asking us, me and you, is this. Why are you here this morning? For yourself? Or for the Lord? See, God is not a pinata we whack with our religious deeds so we can get a sweet, sugary life. God wants to give us something more. He wants to give us himself. Why are you here? Now, I know right now some of you are spiritually suffocating. As I speak, you know the dark recesses of your heart. You're honest enough to admit your motives are mixed and skewed. You know what God says is true. You've confessed your rebellion. You desire pure motives. You want to love the Lord supremely. And there's a gap. You're weary. You're tired. You're confused. And you often feel condemned. Can I remind you, the very fact that you're not okay is an evidence of God's grace. Even the desire to desire greater holiness is a merciful act of God in your life. Don't minimize that. And don't feel like you have to hide. Thank God for even the smallest evidences of grace. And can I remind you of another thing? A more important thing. Can I remind you that it's not your purity of motives that restores you back to God. It is the person of Jesus Christ. As we'll see in chapter 8, God has a deep, enduring, passionate, personal love for his people and nothing can thwart his promises for his children. Yes, examine your motives, but only let it lead you to the mercy of Christ. Here's why. A weak faith can lay hold of a strong Jesus. Remember chapter 3. Who's the one who gives us clean, pure clothes? Ourselves? No, Jesus, he clothes us in purity and righteousness. Look to him, beloved, look to him. For my friends that are here, and you're deliberately trying to earn God's favor through external obedience, can I plead with you to hear what Zechariah is saying? You cannot do it. Your religious deeds have no currency in heaven to buy God off. Christianity is about something more than rule-keeping and ritual observing. It's about delighting in God for what He's done and then serving others. It's about enjoying the mercy of God and then extending that mercy to others. That's what we see in verses 8 through 10. Look there, verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. 
the kind of fast the Lord desires is a fast from sin unto justice, mercy, and kindness. See, if Israel's fasting had been truly from a love for God, it would have resulted in a love for neighbor. That's Zechariah's point. Because the fountain of vertical love for God always overflows into the rivers of horizontal love for neighbor. We'll pick this back up in chapter 8, but for now, look what happens. Look at verse 11. But they, that is the previous generation, refused to pay attention and turned the stubborn shoulder, stopped their ears, they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. Zechariah reminds the people, sin brings destruction. He reminds the people of the the former days, their rebellion and the dire consequences. And notice what Zechariah makes crystal clear. The people are responsible for their rebellion. This does not the result of inability or ignorance. They knew what God's word commanded, and they actively and defiantly refused to obey it. Look at the imagery there. They gave God the cold shoulder. They stopped up their ears. They made their hearts hard. The picture that came to mind as I was studying this text is when a little kid sticks his finger in his ears and runs the other way and says, Ah, I can't hear you. Like just, he doesn't care. Actively and defiantly running away. And do you see what they're neglecting? Look at verse 12. What are they neglecting? The law and the words the Lord of hosts sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Divinely inspired words of God actively speaking to His people. The Spirit is at work calling them to joyful obedience and they refuse. And God says, a rejection of of my word is a rejection of me, myself. And what's the result? They refuse to listen to God, so God refused to listen to them. The consequence was broken relationship with God. Sin brings separation. And the land was des- that was described as prosperous in verse 7 is now what? Desolate. The people that were gathered, worshiping God, are now what? Scattered. Disobedience disobedience brings division. The effects of sin are like shattered glass. Cracks move in every direction. Zechariah's message is clear. Do not be like your hard-hearted, unrepentant, unfaithful, disobedient, covenant-breaking forefathers. Remember, sin brings destruction. And everything they suffered here, why did they suffer it? Because they refused to pay attention to the Word of the Lord. And just like the Spirit of God was speaking to the people of God through Zechariah, He's doing the same thing now. Beloved, we're not reading somebody else's mail. This is written to us and for us, for our instruction and our encouragement. This is Christian Scripture. 
And the Spirit of God is speaking to us today through this very passage. And He's saying, remember, sin brings destruction. I'm reminded of Hebrews 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He goes on, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, all of us have the same condition. We suffer from spiritual amnesia. And we're tempted to believe that a little compromise here, a little wandering over there, won't really have any lasting effect. And Satan says, don't listen to God's word today. Resolve to listen to God's word tomorrow. Why? Because when you wake up, what day is it? It's today. Tomorrow never comes. It never comes. And like rust on metal, the corrosion of unrepentant sin will erode even the strongest part of your soul. See, the heart-penetrating question this text is asking us, me and you, is this. Where is it that you're tempted to refuse to pay attention to God's Word? Or maybe that's a bit too strong. Maybe, maybe it's more subtle and it's like this. What are the respectable yet unrepentant sins in your life? Gossip? Greed? Self-righteous anger? Thanklessness? So-called white lies? Lack of self-control? Self-centered complaining? Hidden immorality? See, the taste of sin might be momentarily sweet, but it soon turns to gravel in your mouth. And if you continue to chew on it, it will just bring pain and destruction. We need caring brothers and sisters to remind us of the goodness of God's Word and the joy that He calls us to, don't we? We need people in our community groups, in our church family, to remind us, like Zechariah is doing, of the deceitfulness of sin and the destruction of rebellion. And I praise God for you, Restoration Church. So many of you are so eager to hear God's Word, understand God's Word, and apply it to your lives. And you're so eager to help others do the same. I praise God for you, beloved. Even when it's hard, I've seen this firsthand, even when it's hard and God's Word presses against your inclinations and your desires, you beg God, God, soften my heart. I know your Word is for my good. Would you help me understand it? Would you help me apply it? And so many of you invite others to use God's Word like a, like a gentle surgeon's knife to cut away sin and expose it to bring the healing balm of Christ. And so by God's grace, let's resolve to continue to be a church family that invites the Spirit in, that gives us a sensitivity to His Word. That we might not refuse it, but we might joyfully obey it. Daily, weekly, publicly, privately. Reminding one another, sin brings destruction. But God's Word and God's ways are always better. Because they lead us to Christ. And He's better. So the goal is not to say no to sin. The goal is to say yes to Christ. Because He's better. Amen. So as chapter 7 ends, it ends on a note of judgment. But in chapter 8, we 
go from past judgment to future joy. From worthless rituals to wonderful realities. And Zechariah is saying, rejoice. The Lord promises restoration. So as we read chapter 8, I want you to listen for the refrain, thus says the Lord. You'll hear it ten times. And you'll hear the covenant name, the Lord, more than twenty times. And what this chapter is, it is an overwhelming promise from God about all the good He's going to bring to His people. Let's read chapter 8 together. And the word of the, ho- word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heaven shall give its dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and O house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring you disaster to you when your, forf- when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take the hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. 
For we have heard that God is with you. Thus says the word of God. So if chapter 7 calls God's people to love God by remembering past judgment, chapter 8 calls God's people to love God by rejoicing in the promised future joy. Beloved, rejoice. The Lord promises restoration. And why? Why does He bring restoration? Verse 2. Because He's jealous for His people. This doesn't mean He's envious and maliciously conspiring to get something that isn't His. No. The Lord's jealousy is His deep, intimate love for His people. So think about the, like the way a husband loves his wife and will do anything to let her know that he cherishes her and adores her. And then in verses 3 through 5, the Lord promises that one day he will dwell with his people and there will be peace and prosperity. This new Jerusalem will be what it was always meant to be. A city marked by what? Faithfulness. Holiness. It will be a place that perfectly expresses the character of the God who dwells there. And like a marriage, the bride Jerusalem, the people of God, will take God's last name. They will be holy and faithful. And do you see the poetic language here? Old men and old women leaning on their canes, not a care in the world. Little boys, little girls running through the streets, laughing, smiling, playing, free. Then in verses 10 through 12, we see this idea of restored community, abundant provision, crops exploding everywhere, security, safety, peace, prosperity. All these are pictures of the beauty of what is to come. In other words, as Israel sits in shambles, God says, one day, everything sad will come untrue. All will be made right. One big block party. Friends and family, feasting and fellowshipping forever. Think about it. Think about their situation. Exiled for 70 years. Hard pressed in. Circumstances not good. And so naturally they're like, really Lord? So verse 6, he says, just because you think this is too marvelous and too hard for you, it's not too hard and too marvelous for me. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is the type of God I am. And notice the glorious promise in verse 7 and 8. The Lord will save His people from the east and the west. That's the whole world. The whole world. And notice the language, beloved. What does He say? I will save those people? No. I will save who? Who? My. My people. And I will be their God. This is personal. This is relational. This isn't a stale promise from a distant God whose love is unsure and never expressed. This is a promise from a covenant Lord who is intimately near. See, God, He has not saved His people reluctantly only to resent them. He is saving them fervently that He might enjoy them. Remember chapter 2, what does He call us? The apple of His eye. His love is not limited, but it is lavish. That's who this God is. Verses 2 through 8 and really all of chapter 8 show us this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who in holy jealousy promises His people they will be in His presence forever. 
This should sound familiar to us. This is the story of the Bible. This is the reality of the church, and this is the hope of heaven. So chapters 8 promises are part of what we call already, not yet. That means everything in this chapter has a present aspect and a future aspect. See, God was already present among his people. Notice what he says. I have returned. That's already. And then he says, I will dwell. That's not yet. Already, not yet. And for us, beloved, God already dwells among us. Is this not why Christ came to save his people from the east and from the west? In faithfulness, the Lord kept his promise to redeem a people. In righteousness, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, dwelt among us, lived the perfect life, went to the cross, atoned for sin, died, cut off from the fellowship of God, dead three days, but death could not hold him. He rose from the dead that we might be brought back to God. Now, all those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ are part of the people of God. We are His temple. God dwells among us, beloved. Already. Today. Now. Amen. But He's not done. It gets better. Just like it's promised here. One day... Everything sad will come untrue. It's not too hard for God. Whatever you can ask or think, He can do abundantly more. And some of you have pretty wild imaginations. And He can do more. Ephesians chapter 3. One day, New Jerusalem will come down from heaven. God's people will enjoy the unhindered, uninterrupted Fellowship with God and each other in the world as it was always meant to be. So here, the heart-strengthening promise this text is giving us is this. God will dwell with his people forever. And be part of God's people does not mean you're perfect and perform certain rituals. It means you're repentant and you trust Christ the Savior. So no matter what you've done, Maybe it's last night. I don't know what you did last night. But maybe you came in here and you just feel obliterated with shame and guilt. Maybe it's something that happened to you last night or 10 years ago or or 30 years ago. And you think you're too dirty to be part of the people of God. This text says, no. Christ is enough for you. Don't let your story end with the end of chapter 7 and judgment. Move on into chapter 8. And trust the sweet promise of God through Christ that you can dwell with Him forever. The Lord does all this. Why? Because of His passionate, faithful, always, forever, unending, immeasurable love for His people. Restoration Church, glutton yourself on the love of God and His promises. He brings restoration. And here's what we see in the rest of chapter 8. God's people, fueled by God's promises, will work hard to fulfill His purposes. So just like we saw in chapter 7. So in verse 9 and verse 15, we see twice the Lord tells the people, let your hands be strong. In other words, get to work. Build the temple. And twice, in verse 13 and verse 15, He says, Fear not. Don't be afraid. 
He knows the work will not be easy. It will be hard. It will be difficult, both internally in our souls and externally, he's telling the people. Verse 13, once you were a byword among the nations, but then what's going to happen? You're going to be a blessing to the nations. And he said, I have purpose to do good to you. Is that the way you think about God? That he's purposed to do good to you in Christ? And then he says, listen, I purpose to do good to you and through you. Verse 16, that's why he writes. These are the things you are to do. And he reiterates what we saw back in chapter, nine, uh, chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. He's calling his people, hear my promises, now live it out. Act justly. Care for the weak and the vulnerable. Promote truth and mercy, compassion and kindness. Care for each other. See, God is calling his people to care about and take part in correcting wrongs large social injustices and oppression, all the way down to meeting material and spiritual needs, the way we we orient our heart and use our words. So in other words, God's love for us and our love for God shapes everything about us. Zechariah is telling us, if our faith doesn't help us build the temple, the temple of God's church, as we saw last week, and serve those in need, if our faith doesn't cause us to do that, not only is it unacceptable to the Lord, it's unhelpful to others. Restoration Church, we must care about social injustices like human sex trafficking and racism and abortion. We must care about those in the foster system, the vulnerable immigrant, those who are hungry and poor. We must make a sacrificial commitment to do good to those among us. We must strive to, be, to do deliberate physical and spiritual good to those inside the church. That's what he's talking about here. It's around us and it's among us. It's the people of God. And notice the motivation. He cares about justice and all these things. Not because it's culturally cool. Not because it's politically correct. You know, beloved, one day these things are not going to be very politically correct and we still have to care about them. You know that. Why? We love what God loves and we hate what God hates. You see that in the text. Because of that, the church is meant to reflect the character of God. Remember earlier, We're going to take his name, holy and faithful. So we use the resources, passion and proximity God has given us to seek justice and help others in need. And again, I praise God for you, Restoration Church. So many of you live this out. We're not perfect, no. Do we have room to grow? Yes. But so many of you seek to live this out. If you're looking for ways to, to do this, for your, for your vertical love of God to overflow into horizontal love, here's a list of seven or eight. Don't try to do all of them. A couple practical ways to do this. DC 127. Talk to Christy Coster or Megan Greider about how our church is involved with that ministry, caring for foster, those in the foster care system. Talk to Whitney King. She's part of Christian Legal Aid in DC that seeks about bring justice to those that maybe can't afford it on their own. Reach out to Alejandro at Sublime Gracia, our daughter church. They minister amongst people that are very vulnerable. Ask them, how can I serve you? 
Talk to Sean Leong about serving at Friendship Terrace. Remember, this is true living, religion to look after the orphans and who? The widows. We often forget that. Friendship Terrace. On August the 24th, plan to attend our second racial reconciliation event where we'll learn more about the systematic injustices of our day. Parents. Parent with mercy and kindness. Promote justice in your own house. Be firm with discipline and generous with love. In your job, work hard, excel, and do it while being honest, promoting integrity, promoting justice, and rejecting passivity. You can model that in your job, Christian. Pay attention to the needs of the brothers and sisters inside this church and eagerly meet them. Don't think, oh, somebody else will handle that. I'm like, I can seek this out. Verse 16, thus you shall do. In every sphere of your life, don't devise evil, even with your words. Notice he cares about our words. Deliberately plan to bless. Restoration Church, rejoice. The Lord promises restoration, and he often brings it through us to one another. If you've been paying attention, I hope you have, but you'll notice, wasn't there a question that was asked back in chapter 7? Is he ever going to answer that question about fasting? Kind of. He comes to these final verses and we, he comes close to answering that, that question. He's been dealing with, with deeper issues. And so verses 18 and 19, Zechariah tells them, you want to worry about fasting? Here, one day, fasting will be no more. In other words, don't worry about when certain fasts will stop. Set your hope on when fasting itself will stop. That's what you need to be worried about. And worship the Lord with joy and gladness until that day comes. And, and as you do that, look what's going to happen. Verses 20 through 23. People from all nations will be attracted to the glad-hearted worship and join in. You see that? People from all nations will see the, the glad-hearted worship of God's people and be attracted to it. We see elements of this being fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When people from all nations show up and are like, this Jesus is amazing, what should we do? Repent and believe and be baptized, Peter says. We also see it partially fulfilled in this church. Just in our little church, 125 members, there's more than 20 different nations represented that worship King Jesus together. Hallelujah. You are, beloved, you are a... You are the fulfillment of this promise. That's amazing. And as we support church planting in Sublime Gracia and in Iraq and in the Northeast and Mercy of Christ Fellowship, we're all a little taste of this fulfillment of God's promise as the nations come in. Restoration Church in Zechariah 8, we see our mission, don't we? Making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. I know that's not exactly how he said it, but it's the same exact thing. It's what's happening. And notice what they're doing. They're saying, hey, I'm going to worship the king, Jesus. You want to come with me? That's what's happening. That's what we do. Beloved, that's what we do. We make disciples. Hey, I'm going to worship Jesus. You want to come? Who's Jesus? Let me tell you. Then I'll protect you. That's what we do. And notice what verse 23 says. Oh, in those days, people from every tongue... We'll hold the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. Does anyone know of a Jew whose robe people from every tribe and tongue hold on to 
Because God is with him and they can bring him into God's favor. Does anybody know a Jew like that? All of us who are part of the people of God cling to the robe of one Jew. Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his sin-paying death on the cross, we're restored back to God. And because of his resurrection, we look forward to the day when all tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples will sing together in New Jerusalem. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. God promises restoration. And it's coming soon. If you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, will you respond? Will you come, cling by faith to the robe of the one Jew who can bring you into the presence of God forever? Will you do that? If you want to know more about that, come ask me. Ask the person who brought you. So does Zechariah ever answer the question? Yes, but maybe not in the way we expect. See, this wasn't one rambling discourse. No. Zechariah is shifting our focus from a list of rules that we might love a sovereign Lord of grace. He shifts the focus from rituals we perform for God to wonderful promises about the reality God will give to us in Christ, to his children. And when we understand that, we'll live a joyful life of obedience, anticipating the fullness of joy to come. In that day, all of our fasting will be feasting. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We marvel that how a text of Scripture written centuries ago is so applicable and relevant to our lives today. It is living and active, and for that we praise you. Holy Spirit, take this word, and we pray that you would, I pray that you would afflict the comfortable, and you would comfort the afflicted. You would go about your business, that you might bring us through chapter 7 to chapter 8, that we might rejoice in all that you promise us in Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.